spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. And welcome to the 90th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing uh, doing pretty all right, Cody. A little hungover, but yeah. I'm here. So. Okay. All right. Well, you're, you're still kicking. That's all we need you for. Um, yep. So <laughs> I think I cursed us because it started snowing today. So I'm hoping that tomorrow morning it'll be mostly gone or like at least mostly cleaned up so i don't have to worry about it on my way to work oh yeah because <laughs> i haven't drove yeah. i have a you know like half hour drive now and it's like uh, have a slippery that's gonna add on another like 20 fucking minutes and if there's idiots driving in front of you that are yeah. you know driving like shit yeah five well, miles an hour down the interstate yeah there usually is anyway so what are you gonna do <laughs> but what I wanted to ask you about, I I watched a documentary I know you have seen. Um, <laughs> I finally watched uh, Jesus Camp. Oh, nice. Holy shit. That's literally all I can say. What a bunch of crazy people who are clearly brainwashing children, and it is fucking terrifying. Yeah, the woman on there, the, the big lady, is fucking insane. I love when she calls in this show, and it's like just, I I don't know. He's like putting points out to her, and she's just like, well, I'm okay with that because these kids need to learn about God. Like, oof, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Well, I noticed on there that one kid was watching something on the TV that was like creationism adventures or something like that. So yeah. I, I dug through YouTube, and I found it. Wow. It is 13 minutes of pure cringe. The girl... First, the girl goes in the classroom and, and she's like basically um, going to give a presentation. And the girl before her is like, I guess there's like an explosion and there is like, you know, planets. And then we started off as a tiny bacteria you can't even see. And now we're here like she's doing like an overly dramatic thing. And then the girl brings in like Jesus cam sunglasses so they can see, they look at people, and then they can tell what day God created them on. Apparently, humans <laughs> were the sixth day, by the way. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Actually, I should I should look that up. But... You should. It is, oh my God, it is so, <laughs> it's just, and of course, the comments were disabled for it. Yeah, my favorite part of that Jesus Camp documentary, I have a few different favorite parts. One, of course, is the kids in front of the cutout of George W. Bush yeah. crying and thanking him for, you know, being the fucking Jesus representative oh my on God. him. Another one is when the girl was with her family in the bowling alley. And all of a sudden, she walks up to this chick who's, I don't know, probably <laughs> like maybe 20, 21. Yeah. And she's like telling her all about Jesus. And the like the chick is just like, oh, okay. Okay, and then the girl like walks away and she gives her like a little booklet or something with, you know, like little scriptures or something in it. And she's like, I just I felt the I felt the spirit of God telling me to go talk to her, blah, blah, blah. And it's like you found a chick that you thought looked like a tramp. And that's the one that you decided Jesus wants you to go talk to that one. Like, <sighs> yeah, it's that poor lady just felt so uncomfortable. Obviously, she's not going to be like. Get your little fucking Christ ass out of here. She's like, okay, give me the, give me the little pamphlet. Cool, I'll look into <laughs> okay. this. I don't want to be burning in hell for the rest of my life. Yeah, the current thing that you can actually say to people like that is, if they try to sell you something, can you actually just uh, maybe send me an email on that or something, and then just give them a fake email. Hell yeah, it's the best thing to do. <laughs> or a, an old junk email, like the one I had when I was like fifteen. I still give that. To some uh, people who want to do like surveys and shit. You should make an email that's like, 
Satan's horse cock lover 69 <laughs> at uh, gmail.com or something and then tell him and all this stuff there or just something ridiculous like that. Satan lover underscore 666 at yahoo.com. The, by go. the way, free on Hulu right now or it's streaming on Hulu. So anybody give it a watch because it's just mind boggling, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, God, I've been I well, I've been trying to get back into Amazon because I realized I haven't watched it in like two months and I'm paying every month for it. So I've been trying to get into that and into Shudder. But yeah, I need something to watch, so that might actually be funny to jump back on. Yeah, I definitely do it. It's uh I've been in a documentary mood lately, so I've been just like watching the stupidest <laughs> documentaries, alien ones, cryptid yeah. ones, ghost ones, just fucking whatever I can find. Uh, it's, uh, and Jesus Camp was a, uh, nice Saturday afternoon film. Yeah, getting ready for the eventual disclosure that we're gonna be getting in a few months, probably. Hell yeah. When, supposedly when Trump leaves office, he's gonna tell everyone what he knows. That's what I heard this weekend at the bar, so. Okay, well, maybe we'll yep. be in for some cool news. Yep, uh, from some crazy person at the bar, uh, they might not have even had a name. I don't know, I don't learn names of people, so. <laughs> You know, a drunk person at the bar is the most trusted source in the world, Phil. But anyway, uh, yeah, let's get into this week's topic. What uh, what what do we bring into the table this week, Phil? All right, so let me jump right in here. Before the mid-19th century, the Japanese islands were a nation that isolated itself from other countries, whether they be close neighbors in East Asia or powerful Western colonial powers. These colonial powers had begun trying to make a grab for territories and resources in the East Asia and Southeast Asia region. Basically, they were seeing all of the great wealth and the weakened state of the Qing dynasty in China, which is really the prize. China was the prize at the time. This was before the race for Africa. So, Gotcha. So you are speaking of... Um... Uh, I'm, I'm get which countries are you talking about as far as Western colonial powers? Oh, you know, uh, so basically the United States was a brand new one in the the stage. So was Germany, but the old ones, uh, Britain, France, you know, remnants of the Dutch and Portuguese, remnants of Spain <laughs> were still in there. You know, the remnants of the Dutch. Did they run out of clogs or what? No, the remnants of the Dutch Empire. Ah, okay. It was in decline at the time. And so was, you know, so was Portugal, so was Spain, so. <laughs> you know how you st- stop the Dutch Empire, Phil? How's that? You just, like, light a fire, and if they try to walk on it, their shoes catch on fire, and then they're disabled instantly. Yeah, or just some nice sturdy nails in the floor. <laughs> <laughs> that shit breaks apart. Just put a, shit, in their foot. Just put a shitload of termites in a bomb <laughs> they're just they can't do nothing they don't have any shoes anymore yeah <laughs> so japan who had closed up their port cities to merchants and also had put massive restrictions on their harbors in regards to foreign vessels had seen the failures of the Qing dynasty in its fight against the british in the first opium war and really wanted to try to increase the defenses that they had at their ports and this was obviously to repel any foreign incursions against Western invasion. The, are you telling me the Knickerbocker boys were after the uh, the opium in China, huh? Well, yeah. So the thing was, it was British merchants were selling the black market opium from India, bringing it into the markets in China. The Chinese gotcha. were trying to get the opium out of their country because of how opium addiction is just fucking terrible. Oh, like, yeah. You've seen all the old pictures of like the people in opium dens just, you know, hanging out there for fucking hours. It was a lot of work for opium back then because you had a six foot pipe and then you needed a friend to light it for you. Yeah, they you like those opium dens would have fucking yeah. attendants who would come and light your opium for you. And then you passed right back out. When you woke up, you would just take another hit. So I never understood why you had to smoke it sideways. Very weird. I don't know. Well, they, <laughs> they smoked know. it sideways so that they could just immediately go back to sleep. <laughs> now, new and more powerful defenses wouldn't be enough, however, as a four-ship detachment would be led by Commodore Matthew Perry. Okay, the guy from Friends. Yes, definitely. Yep, Chandler, <laughs> Chandler. from Friends came Chandler. in a four-ship detachment. 
I was wondering what happened to him after he got after Friends got canceled. Yeah. Uh, acting career kind of dried up, so he had to join the Navy in the 18, you know, 1800s. I mean, clearly he was good at it. Definitely. So they invaded the Edo port and gave the Shogunite the orders that the Japanese needed to open up their country to foreigners, namely, of course, the United States, who sent Matthew Perry. Mm. So he delivered the Japanese two white flags, which he told them that they could raise when they no longer wanted the American ships to fire upon their buildings in the port, after which Commodore Perry then immediately opened fire on the buildings, uh, just on like the outskirts of the harbor. But he fired them just with no, they weren't live ammo. It was just blanks. So he was claiming that he was doing it for Independence Day, but it was definitely most likely a threat to the Japanese. Okay, all right. So he... He, I mean, I, I don't, I get. Uh, did you mention what state he was from? Because that's basically a, tel- a Texan celebration right there. That is a Texan thing. Yeah. When I was living in New Mexico, I was very surprised. I see it here too. Any single holiday, any single Dallas Cowboys win, you always knew if the Dallas Cowboys won that night if you heard gunshots <laughs> in the distance on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon or night. Well, you know, it's customary in Texas. Even at like a one-year-old's birthday party to start shooting guns in the sky. So little Tiffany's <laughs> turning one. <laughs> they they don't have a, a fucking... give the baby a gun and let the baby shoot the uh, shoot the cake. That's how they shoot do the that. Out. Yeah, yeah, that's how they celebrate their one-year-old birthday there. Yeah, Texas just uh, just a state full of Yosemite Sam's. <laughs> <laughs> Now all I can think about is when he was giving him the flags, all of a sudden you just heard the the fucking Friends theme song playing. <laughs> <laughs> he just it like is funny because <laughs> even when I was in school learning about the uh, the forced opening of Japan, I always I heard Matthew Perry and constantly would be thinking of Chandler like on a boat, like wearing a fucking Commodore's hat and shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he kind of has the face of a captain, honestly. Yeah, kind of. He kind of has the look of like an 1800s person, too. <laughs> he definitely does. On his face. So when Perry returned to Japan the next time, the Japanese would begin negotiations with the Americans, later signing the Treaty of Amenity and Commerce in 1858, resulting in Japan being really just kind of forced to make these not very good concessions to the Americans. And they include Japanese ports would be opened to American ships and traders. A total of five of their ports. Gotcha. Americans would be allowed to live and trade in those Japanese ports. And now they can park there permanently. Yeah, now they now they can set up shop permanently. Gotcha, okay. So Americans would only have to follow the laws of the counselor courts that were set up in these countries. They would not have to obey the japanese laws. okay that one seems kind of funny yeah it's a little fucked up they kind of almost had diplomatic immunity from japanese laws Mm, yeah there would be favorable trade duties on imports and exports for american traders so basically the american traders were able to fuck over all of the japanese traders okay there was also something called a favored nations clause that basically means that any favorable term given to another nation uh, with a treaty of their own, they would also have to be given to the Americans. So say there's some other favorable term that the Americans didn't think of that was given to Britain, mm-hmm. that would also be given to the Americans. Gotcha. So I'm just going to be real with you here, Phil. When I hear 1858 in America, it's hard to believe that they were doing all this. All I think about is like a fucking miner spitting in a spittoon. He has like three teeth and he's spending all his money at the brothel. Like it's hard to imagine people being able to sail ships and do all this shit. Yeah. America was really just getting into the whole empire business. So they were still fighting, you know, the indigenous peoples of like the North American continent for the land that they had just acquired. Yeah. Like a few decades earlier. So you would think that they would be busy, but they were also trying to, they were basically trying to catch up with the British and French empires and well, their colonial powers. Um, so the Americans essentially just pulled up to Japan, 
started blowing shit up and said, listen, you're going to do this, so we're going to really fuck your shit up. Yeah, basically. It was it was called gunboat diplomacy. Yikes. Okay. Well, I'm starting to see why uh, maybe the Japanese were a little mad in the uh, 19, what, 40s? 40s, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it was that, and it was a lot of other things that European powers had fucked them over. So the Russo-Japan War that would happen right before World War One, basically Japan, against all odds, really beat the Russians, which no one expected to happen. So what the ending of the war was like, Russia would have Britain come to the table and be the negotiator for, you know, the two sides. How it turned out is Japan would get fucked, like the, the land that Japan was fighting for, they would get fucked over on all of that land. Britain would basically either keep shit for themselves or give it to the Russians. So it was as if the Japanese lost that war instead of, you know, the Japanese winning. Gotcha. Okay. There is that. And there is also land in World War One. They basically took it away from the Germans in the South Pacific, in the, you know, Pacific theater that a lot of people don't really know much about, but they lost a lot of that land that they thought they should be able to keep, you know, for helping the allies win the war. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize the Japanese were actually um, involved in World War One. They were on the allies side. Were they? Okay. Yeah. I feel like I kind of heard about that from like the Rasputin shit because it was um, right around that time, right? Yeah. It was uh, yeah. one of the big losses that the Russians faced right before the communist takeover. Just, uh, you know, two decades or so before. Yeah. So perceived weaknesses of the Shogunite due to the forced opening by the Americans led to the Meiji reforms, which saw the forced modernization of the Japanese islands, transforming the culture from a medieval feudalist society to a modern industrial nation that would be able to repel foreign conquerors and eventually perhaps even compete with the old colonial powers and possibly create their own empire. So that was the goal. Okay. So what what do you know like what Japan would have looked like cuz I'm assuming it's you're kind of describing it basically in between feudal Japan and like industrial Japan like in that middle ground kind of during that time? Yes. So kind of what I always learned about was it was almost like you could imagine Japan from the 1500s just in the mid 1800s. So it was basically the same way they were pretty much living in the 1500s, just in modern times, like the 1800 modern times. Gotcha. Um, and then if you've ever seen the great Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, <laughs> yeah. they do mention they do mention how when the British dude showed up, uh, the when he had first showed up to the J Japanese islands, to that city, he was saying like, you wouldn't believe what this place used to look like. And now they had, you know, telegraph wires they had all this you know modern technology stuff. Yeah, yeah trains and everything that's crazy honestly that's crazy to think about yeah definitely so as a result of this fast tracking of state growth the japanese economy and people also had to transform transforming their cities and their ways of life to accommodate this forced societal evolution uh, that was really happening all around them this change from working for was basically just your regional feudal state to working towards a better and more powerful Japan led to an inevitable jump in nationalistic pride and a severe sense of Japanese exceptionalism among many of the average Japanese citizens, including the expanding of the Imperial Army and Navy. You know what, Phil? It's kind of sounding like um, somebody else, uh, another country that <laughs> we kind of know did this thing. Yeah, well, there's a there's quite a few countries that were doing this at this time. But are you talking about recently? Well, I, I would say essentially that's what happened to Germany, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They uh, so they were trying to also at this time become the big power uh, when they you know, when the German country formed. They already had the Prussian military, who was the most powerful army in Europe. They added that to the old remnants of the Holy Roman Empire, like the other little countries like Bavaria and all that. And they, you know, really came onto the world stage. They were basically trying to do the same thing. Gotcha. Okay. So te technically, Japan did it first before them. Well, Japan and Germany were, yeah. Japan did do it first, but that's just because Germany wasn't really a country yet. So, 
Gotcha. Okay. I were you assuming I was talking about the MAGA boys right now? I thought you were talking about the United States. Okay. Yeah, well, and, uh, nationalistic. You know. <laughs> I mean, just because we have a section at Walmart dedicated to the American flag, it doesn't make us nationalists, does it, Phil? <laughs> no. The fact that we have WalMarts—that's the—that's the problem. <laughs> with this our national pride is our corporations that we send and colonize other countries. Definitely. McDonald's. That's fucking McDonald's and fucking Walmart should be on the flag. The most success, the most successful fucking armies the world's ever seen. McDonald's, Definitely. Walmart, all the fast food, Starbucks. Yep. That Walmart army keeps getting stronger now that they're firing all the old greeters <laughs> and hiring fucking instead of instead of greeters. Now it's security people looking for fucking people shoplifting at the front of the store. <sighs> oh, Walmart. Yeah. So this sense of exceptionalism would grow over the next few decades, and when coupled with the addition of the samurai legends and cultures, which would lead to a Japanese military system that would not only dehumanize the enemies of Japan, but also create a cult within the servicemen. Starting from birth, a Japanese serviceman would be willing to give his life for the defense of his homeland, and that death was a much better option than he would face with the possibility of returning to his country in dishonor. That, that's a, yeah, that was a big thing with samurais and all that, wasn't it? I mean, it still kind of is there, as far as I know. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. It might be just the remnants, like the holdouts from the culture, but it can't be as bad as it was during then, pre-World War II. Right. Like, there's no way. That was nationalism. Like, red. that was redlining nationalism. Well, the... Um... I mean, I know it's kind of an extreme example, but I remember when Adam forever ago did that Yakuza uh, mm. episode. Essentially, they follow that same creed. You know, you'd never dishonor your brothers or whatever. And if you do, you have to do whatever, cut your fingers off or something like that. Yeah, at this, I mean, the uh, the tradition that they inherited from the samurai was called seppuku. Mm. And it was... Um, cut your own guts out. Yeah. yeah, they would take the blade into their left. The sh their, they had two blades. They had their short blade and their long, you know, samurai swords. The short one and the long one. They would take their short one, starting with the left, and cut into their stomach and then turn it up. And they would have an attendant who was usually a friend of theirs or a, like a superior officer who would be behind them and cut their head off. Didn't they cut their head off and just leave it hanging by like a thin piece of skin or something like that? No, I think they were trying to cut it clean off. Really? I thought yeah. I remember hearing they cut their head off, but they leave just a little piece of skin there so it can, like, hang there after they do that. Oh, I've never heard that, <clears throat> but might be something to look into. Yeah. This cult mentality ultimately culminated in many officers and enlisted men. And uh, there was also women fighting. Uh, they, I don't think that they were regulars in the military. This culminated during World War II, where... A serviceman would either commit suicide before being captured by allied forces, sometimes by feigning surrender or death, and then when approached by allied forces on the battlefield, they would pull a pin out of the grenade, destroying themselves and the enemy around them. Jesus, okay. Fucking martyr stuff. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I just listened to the newest episode of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, his latest installment of the supernova of the East. And he was talking about, he talks about that in quite a few of the episodes, the tendency to basically what they would have to do is the Americans or not the Americans, like the Australians and the allied forces would have to take their bayonets and stab dead bodies to make sure that they were actually dead. They're going to say throw kangaroos at them. Yeah. Well, of course there is <laughs> the, the wallaby Rangers. We got they, uh, bombed, <laughs> bomb defusing wallabies here. Yeah, they they throw the koalas. The koalas haven't had their fucking eucalyptus for a while, <laughs> so they just rip them apart. <laughs> now, because of the state-sanctioned brainwashing of the Japanese citizens at the time, the idea of ever surrendering to the enemy was never an option, leading to mass casualties among Japanese soldiers and hardly any capturing of POWs, and that is uh, compared to the Axis forces in Europe and African theaters. Okay, all right. As everyone knows, the Allies would eventually drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, this was, as they say, to avoid the full-blown invasion of the Japanese homeland 
avoiding the many hundreds of thousands of deaths that would have occurred. Those two bombs forced the Japanese Emperor Hirohito to surrender to the Allied forces. It's kind of surprising. Like, I mean, it's obviously a terrible thing that happened, but it didn't, I, I don't know that much about it, but it didn't really seem like they were going to give up ever. You know what I mean? No, it would have been an Alamo situation. It would have been a, to the last man. They were already training women, children, old people. They were they were training everybody for the last push. The like when the Americans come, basically. Who Jesus? I wonder why he surrendered. Just knew that they couldn't, uh, or that they would just wipe the whole country off, or you know what I mean? Well. There was, so they got Nagasaki and Hiroshima, that were the first two cities to get hit. There was a threat that the next bomb would be going to Tokyo, or an assumption maybe, that the next bomb was going to Tokyo. Okay. So the thing is, if you've ever watched, there's a documentary called World War II from Space, where they kind of overlay satellite images over the battlefield type, you know, they basically yeah. have like a like an above the earth view of everything that's going on. They were saying that Tokyo was basically firebombed, just di- like completely destroyed. What they said in the documentary was the allied forces were using the Japanese homes as kindling to destroy the factories. Yikes. Holy shit. Yeah. It's fucked up. Yep. Like they're basically just completely destroying the city. Mm. The whole city was made out of wooden buildings. Yeah. So. Right. So Emperor Hirohito surrendering went against the wishes of many of the Japanese citizens and military servicemen who would still want to fight it out in a last stand against the foreign invaders. With civilians, young and old in Japan, like I mentioned before, given weapons and trained for that one last defense of the Japanese homelands, giving their lives in the end for the emperor. Oh, okay. So they probably definitely would have continued to fight in world war ii yeah I, it is kind of really basically the thing that happened berlin at the end a lot of the old a lot of the the only people who were left were the old men and the very young men and a lot of them were given rifles a lot of the a lot of the german people in the last stand of berlin were given weapons and basically told like here's just enough bullets for you to die kill some people before you die so yikes I mean, they weren't told that, but that's kind of what it was. Yeah, it was implied. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of implied. Like, go out there and we don't expect you to do much, but just hold them, you know, take as many out as you can. Right, right. So as a result of the quick end to the war, many of the Japanese soldiers and sailors left behind after the retreat of the Japanese on various islands in the Pacific just before the end of the war didn't really know that the end of the war had ever come. Even after finding out that the war was over, some of these left-behind men either couldn't or wouldn't believe that the mighty Japanese emperor would ever concede. They would remain in isolation, refusing to surrender to the enemy and face the dishonor of returning home rather than fighting until their death or taking their own life, even after their service was no longer necessary. And that is where our episode starts today. Damn, Phil. We're 30 minutes in. We're just getting started here. Yep, exactly. Hell so yeah. today's story is going to go along just one small group. I was going to do quite a few groups, but then I found this really good story. So okay. I want to tell about this small group of uh, holdouts. I almost thought you were going to go into um, the hell is that unit called 147 or like 178 or something like that, where they did like the most fucked up shit. <laughs> Have you Were heard they of this? Japanese or American? Yeah, I was Japanese. Oh, okay. Um, do you know, like, were they kind of like a gorilla, like a shock troop? No, type, or? they would have been like, uh, I don't know. They essentially oh, just tested, like, there. there's a big thing where they would, like, take people, <clears throat> freeze their hands, and yep. then, like, smash them just to see what happens and all that. So this was in the that was in the creep it real episode when they were talking about what the Germans were doing to prisoners of war, right? Well, it was the Japanese who were doing it. Yeah, no, but the the creep it real girls were talking about that unit, right? Oh, probably. It's pretty in famous episode, now. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's a pretty famous thing now. It's really, really dark. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I had actually heard about it, I think, was in that episode. So I, I haven't really read much about it, though. I think it was the Japanese doing it to Chinese people uh, or one of the other countries around them. I don't believe they were doing it to, like, American POWs or anything. I think they are doing it to just uh, uh, Asian captors that they had essentially wanted to test shit on. Yeah, along with the nationalism that I was talking about and the exceptionalism, they also came to see all Asians who weren't Japanese pretty much as subhuman. Mm, so, okay, all right. Yeah, so like the Chinese, basically like a lot of the, like I went to Guam uh, two years ago and they were talking about how the Japanese treated the Chamoran people of Guam mm. during the war after they captured Guam and it was fucking terrible. <sighs> I would imagine so. Yeah, they basically were saying that they were the people were treated like livestock. <laughs> That's so just, fucked up. They were worked to death, basically, and then when they died, they just basically... Or when they were dying on the ground, they just got a bullet in the back of their head, and it's yeah, a, fucking it's a, terrible. It's amazing how we talk about how terrible that is, and then there's like... I'm just gonna assume you have North Korea, where they're essentially still doing that type of thing in 2020. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, labor that. camps and like just executing people for any reason and mm -hmm. yeah, basically, I mean, humans never really change. Just <laughs> isn't that the truth? Everyone, I guess, is as bad as they're either allowed or forced to be. So true. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about four individuals. First off, the most important person in this story, I think, because he was the highest ranking and he was out there the longest. Second lieutenant. Hiro Onada. Hiro was born in Kayanin. I'm going to say a lot of these fucking names of cities and people wrong, so just bear with it's me. It's all right. Was, they they understand we're ignorant Americans. That is true. <laughs> of the highest order. <laughs> yeah. So born in Kainan, that's what I'm going to call it, Japan in 1922, Onada was drafted in the Japanese army in 1942, and that was at the age of about 20. Uh, he would actually before being stationed at his first post, received special training in the art of guerrilla warfare. And after this training, Onada would be sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines to use his training to disrupt allied forces that would soon be landing on the island. Dude, he was only 20 fucking years old. Yep, when he was drafted. I mean, 1942, they were still doing pretty good. But... Like, the seeds of them losing were starting to be planted late 1942, and then especially 43, it gets bad. 44 is worst, and then 45 is fucking hell for him, so. Okay, so I just want to make sure my understanding of the history is accurate here, because Berlin fell in 42, correct? And then the war was- 44. 44, okay. Okay, I know they kept fighting with uh, the Japanese for quite a while after uh, Germany had fallen. Yeah, they were still island hopping into 1945. Gotcha. Uh, that was about a year after Germany fell. Gotcha. Yep. So it goes Italy, then Germany, then Japan. And then North Africa, obviously, was just before Italy. But Italy was kind of one of those countries that wasn't... It was being propped up by Hitler, so... Gotcha. Okay. So after the Allies landed on the island, most of the Japanese military either died or eventually surrendered to the enemy. And this was the exception of pretty much a handful of Japanese soldiers that remained on the island to fight. Now, one of these was Hiro Onada. Mm, okay. Now, Onada was joined originally by three other holdouts. They were Corporal Soshi Shimada... Private Kinsushi Kozaku, Kinshushi Kozaka, and Private Yuchi Akatsu, all names said incorrectly. <laughs> so these four men consider themselves to still be in the service of Imperial Japan, obviously. Uh, they were forming the remnants of a guerrilla cell on the island, though eventually all would either be killed or surrender. So they know the war's over. They're just continuing to fight they aren't exactly sure if the war is over they pretty much think that 
They think that the war is still going on and that any evidence that they find to the contrary is just lies sent to them from the allies. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So right away in 1945, there was an admiral who personally signed leaflets that were dropped on the island telling, you know, telling any remaining Japanese soldiers to surrender. Even though they really looked at these leaflets very carefully to see if they were deceptive, ultimately they did, though, think that they must be deceptive. Like, this couldn't be happening. We couldn't be possibly losing. I mean, can you really blame them, though? If you're in war and the nightmare that you've heard, uh, you know, war stories during this time, like, I don't know, it'd be hard to trust anything like that, I would think. Yeah, and especially, too, I was thinking while I was writing this story, they have no idea what a nuclear bomb is. So they have to be thinking, in order for Japanese, in order for Imperial Japan and the Emperor to surrender, that means that the Allies must have invaded every square inch of the Japanese islands and basically taken out all of the Japanese. Because mm. they don't think that the Emperor is going to surrender until... Every single, they think it's going to be down to the last Japanese civilian. So, right, right. So of the four men, the first to leave the group, Private Yuchi Akatsu, slipped away from the group in September of 1949. Now, I, I did, in a few of the articles I read, I couldn't tell if he escaped or if he got lost or if he just got sick of them and just left. But in one of them, it said slipped away. So I kind of am going with that because okay. I saw a few different instances of he got away. Well, maybe he was just like, these fuckers are crazy. I need to get out of here. Spending four people with <laughs> people you don't or spending four years with some people you maybe don't like. Yeah, yeah I can imagine that. Yeah. So he would survive for about six months, eventually surrendering to whom he had actually thought were allied forces but it actually turned out to be the Filipino army. What did they do to him? Just killed him? No, they Captured they just him? kind of collected him and took gotcha. him, you know, took him to headquarters and figured out who the fuck he was. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Akatsu would learn that the war had come to an end. He would even attempt to aid the Filipino army in getting to the rest of his guerrilla cell that he had formerly been associated with to surrender. He would join and lead a patrol into the jungle and the mountains, uh, even leaving a note for his comrades, telling them that he had been greeted by friendly troops. However, when the three remaining soldiers found the note, they would conclude that Private Okatsu must have been working with the enemy and that his note could not be trusted. Uh, in 1952, there were leaflets and family photos from the three men that had been dropped all over the place where they thought to have been, just trying to really coax the men out of the jungles and the mountains. But they also thought that this must have been a trick. So they had to have been suffering from, like, some sort of manic paranoia, like all three of them together then. It had to be that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it was... It keeps coming back to the fact, the, the whole death before dishonor thing. It keeps coming back to the nationalism and the cult of gotcha. thought, really, that all of these soldiers had. Also, if you started, like you're in a, so say you're alone. If you're alone, you start thinking about wanting to go home, wanting to go be captured, whatever. Whatever happens, happens. The problem is, I think with these guys, they're in a group. So if you show any kind of, you know, weakness or any kind of like not being down for the cause. I wonder if they worried about what the other two or three would do to them. Yeah, I mean, that's a very valid point. It's sometimes when you get in these like, like you said, cult stuff, you get in like this weird mindset where like from the outside looking in, you know, it's like a bad idea or you're being tricked. But when you're in there, you're just synced with everybody else and you just are so paranoid and you just don't know what to believe. And I'm assuming that's what happened to these guys. And like you said, I don't know. You kind of made it sound like the Unada might have been the leader and maybe he's the most radical and maybe he would definitely kill you if you tried to leave. Yeah. So he was a second lieutenant. All of the other three were privates. So he definitely would have been in charge. Honestly, if you so by this point, they had been out there for like 
what, seven or eight years, 1952 to from 44. Yeah, about eight years. If I was still like a private in this lieutenant's, you know, the situation, I'd be kind of pissed off. Like, yeah. Come on, dude. You got to promote me a little bit. You got to <laughs> give me something here. One rank up. Yeah. Make me a <laughs> make me an E3. I'm going to need two forever. So Come they're on. literally just hanging out in the jungle. Yes. Yikes. So I mentioned that they were a gorilla cell, right? Yeah. So they were doing some uh, some guerrilla warfare shit the entire time that they were out there. I'll get into it a tiny bit. But okay. Okay. Yeah. So three years after Akatsu's surrender, Corporal Soshi Shimada, another of the original holdouts, was shot in the leg by some fishermen that the group was in a firefight with. Uh, he actually would receive treatment from Lieutenant Onada, and eventually he would recover. However, he would again be shot in 1954 by a patrol that had been sent out to find the hidden cell well i hope everybody learns this important lesson don't you ever get in a firefight with a group of fishermen because you're gonna lose everybody knows fishermen are sharpshooters definitely oh yeah (laughs) i mean i can just see it now if they would have been pheasant hunters that'd have been great that's why they're the japanese fishing poles are so long because they're a long-barreled gun as well a two, yeah. It has two functions. <laughs> <laughs> it basically just comes apart and you, know, you put it together as a gun. <laughs> so the survivors, Onada and Private Kazuka, would continue to disrupt the livelihoods of the locals for about 18 more years. Jeez. And this was even, yeah, this was even after the Japanese government had assumed that the remaining Hin soldiers <laughs> were dead. The assumption would end, though, in 1972 when Filipino police shot and killed Kazuka after he and Onada had burned rice that the locals had recently picked, which was obviously one of the operations of disruption that the guerrilla cell was conducting in the area. Okay, first off, by this point, they had to look like Robin Williams when he gets out of the board game in Jumanji. It's just like, how? where's the fuck, where they keep getting ammo and shit from? Yeah, that part, I don't know. So I'll tell you how much rounds of ammunition he surrenders with at the end. And it's a lot. I thought that he'd be running on fumes after 29 years. Well, I just gave it away how long. But (laughs) so, yeah, I thought he'd be running on fumes by this time. But he totally had supplies. They were also stealing from farmers. They were stealing from communities. They were doing they were doing a lot of shit to survive out there. So well, it, they were definitely like living off the land, you could say. It's like in 1972, you know, Japan's starting to export Honda fucking Civics. And it's like, wh- what are these guys doing? Oh, yeah. They're like they're just about to, I think, flood the fucking market with Toyotas in a <laughs> yeah. few years here during the gas price. And these, during two, the gas crisis. these two crazy sons of bitches are, think they still have war. Are still out there with their antique rifles and fucking samurai swords. <sighs> I I know Onada had a samurai sword. I don't know if the private had a samurai sword. My I think Lieutenant God. would be more likely to have one than a private. Yeah, so. probably. It's just it's insane to think about. Yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you in the end about how many uh, people the Filipinos claim that these you know this group of people killed and how much damage they did. And it's like goddamn, twenty nine years of just a while could you imagine like you're living in fucking lime springs iowa you know and it's just like oh yeah somewhere out there there's a group of people just coming around burning our crops and killing people <laughs> like yeah that's that, pretty fucking scary yeah absolutely i mean it'd be like fucking there's a group of nazis just like rummaging through the woods of germany still fighting the battle like jesus christ Oh yeah, like the like the ones that definitely live in Antarctica and on the backside yeah. of the moon right now. Definitely. Oh, yeah, we'll have to talk about them one day. Definitely. Yeah. So Onada would be the surviving sole member of the cell remaining when in 1974, Norio Suzuki, a young Japanese world traveler, went to the island and he had told his friends that he was going to look for a panda, the abominable snowman, and second lieutenant Hiro Onada. Now he never did find Jordan out there, but he <laughs> did find Onada, who he became fast friends with. Well, I think at this point you're more likely to find the fucking abominable Im- snowman than you are Jordan. Yeah, if uh, 
If you do have any knowledge about his whereabouts, just email Bumblebutt Podcast. Here, here's the genius it. thing. He loved cryptids, and cryptids are rare sightings. And essentially, he has transformed himself into a living legend amongst cryptids. So maybe that was his whole endgame. Yep. Yeah, when I saw that part about the abominable snowman, I was like, oh, I got to make a Jordan reference in here. <laughs> so Hiro Anada had been left notes, newspapers, radio transmissions, and even had had former family members. Now, it was either his son or his dad. A lot of the research I looked at either said son or dad, though there was a picture of his dad in the jungle looking for him. So I'm more inclined to believe it was the dad. His dad, okay. They had come to the jungle to coax him out. And all of this stuff was happening over the 29 years to get them out. Now, obviously, none of this worked, and Onada told Suzuki that he would only surrender on orders from one of his commanding officers. On 9 March 1974, so Suzuki, after leaving Onada, actually took a picture of himself and Onada back to Japan to get the attention of the Japanese government. And on 9 March 1974, Suzuki would come back and meet Onada in an agreed-upon meeting place. And this was with Yoshimi Tanagachu, who was at one time Onada's commanding officer. Uh, he had the mission to meet Lieutenant Onada and give him the following orders. Number one, in accordance with the Imperial Command, the 14th Area Army has ceased all combat activity. Number two, in accordance with Military Headquarters Command number A-2003, the Special Squadrons of Staff Headquarters is relieved of all military duties. Number three, units and individuals under the command of Special Squadron are to cease military activities and operations immediately and place themselves under the command of the nearest superior officer. When no officer can be found, they are to communicate with the American or Philippine forces and follow their directive. So they found his lieutenant who, or no, what, what, or oh, his commanding he, officer. And uh, major. He, it was his major. Major. Yeah. Okay. They found him 29 years later. This guy has to be, I'm assuming, old as shit at this point. They had to get him out of, be like, can you pause Matlock for a minute? Come out <laughs> to the goddamn jungle and try to get this crazy son of a bitch to come out of there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm going to mention what he was doing in okay. Japan. But you got to think, he had surrendered 29 years earlier. And he probably, I mean, obviously, well, he was a major, maybe he was in some kind of command position, not really on the front lines, but really he must've put the war completely behind himself at this point. I, I would imagine he's probably just, to, yeah. he probably just wanted to fucking play arcade games and not worry about this. Definitely. I mean, Nintendo was starting to come out with some arcade games at this point. You know, everyone was pretty excited about that. There was disco and drugs and everything, too, so... He was just smoking all them 16-year-old kids at fucking Miss Pac-Man. Oh, yeah. Killing it at asteroids. <laughs> so Onada would turn over his sword, a functioning Ariska-type 99 rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades, as well as a dagger that his mother had given him. Uh, it was really just for something to kill himself with if he was ever captured. And finally submit to his pursuers and like i said before the uh, the nationalist fervor so basically the propaganda was that the allies were torturing raping and killing anyone who was caught like any japanese person who was caught civilian old young military it didn't matter okay all right i mean basically what he had with him in the jungle is what uh uh I would say a good section of American citizens have in their basement right now. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was <laughs> thinking about it, and if you had a rifle and 500 rounds in Call of Duty, how long would that last you? Like, you, <laughs> it might last you, like, you know, 15 minutes or so. So he must have, however many rounds he had, he must have made that shit stretch out. Unless he was finding the same caliber of rifle bullet, like, somewhere. Could be. Like, the same round somewhere and well, stole it. 500 rounds of ammunition, that is fucking heavy. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, you really think about it too, maybe, right after the war, when all of those, you know, Japanese military were either dead or had surrendered. Maybe they had left some of their, you know, 
some of their ammunition, some of their supplies just kind of laying around in their old camps or True. their old caves. True. He might have found like rounds of ammunition just in old fucking, you know, boxes. Who knows? True. Who knows if like who knows if those were his original bullets or if he just found them. So and the hand grenades, too. So, like I said before, uh, former Major Yoshimi Tanagachu was the one who came and relieved him. He actually had settled into a very comfortable life as a bookseller in 1974. And you can imagine was very surprised when the Japanese government had asked him to fly to the Philippines to bring in a former soldier that had been previously under his command at one time. Uh, this was, like I said, 29 years after the end of the war. When Onada surrendered, he received a full pardon from the, at the time, Filipino president, Ferdinand Marcos, as all of the destruction of property, firefights, and killings had been done under the assumption of war. Uh, Onada would receive a hero's welcome upon his return to Japan, becoming a celebrity and even writing a book titled No Surrender, My 30-Year War in 1974. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm just like blown away because I would, in my mind, I would assume Onada would just be like mentally gone, you know, by living this way for 30 years, thinking the war's still going on, but somehow he became a celebrity and wrote a book. Yeah. He did have someone to hang out with for most of that time, at least. And then uh, he was only alone for two years straight after the death of uh, the last, the second to last guy. Um, so I think that might have contributed to why he became friends with the Japanese traveler. Well, uh, just because he was lonely as fuck, I would assume. Well, two years without his cuddle buddy, I imagine. So probably wanted that yeah. guy to cuddle with him at night. Pretty much. <laughs> so Onada, like you were just kind of mentioning, would have trouble adjusting to modern Japan and modern life outside of, you know, his island fortress yeah, that he was living on. Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, especially what he was saying was the degradation of the Japanese values that he grew up with. And like I mentioned, uh, like at the start of the podcast, some of those Japanese values, they changed for a good reason. Right. So he would eventually move to a Japanese community in Brazil known as Colonia Jamek. In April of 1975, he saw uh, them. There, he he saw them big butts, and big yeah. Brazilian girl butts, and he's like, "Man, I gotta get there." <laughs> oh shit! I saw he saw like one dirty magazine in a fucking store. He's like, "Where is this at? Brazil? <laughs> yeah, I gotta get to Brazil. <laughs> I can go anywhere I want, right? I don't have to stay on this fucking island." Okay, I'm gone. <laughs> so he'd become a cattle farmer, and he would move there uh, along with his brother. Uh, he would eventually come back to Japan in 1984, and this was to open a camp for young people. Uh, this was after reading about a Japanese teenager that had been killed by his parents. Really? That that touched him, huh? Yeah, I guess he was trying to use his celebrity. Okay, so, well, I mean, kids. he did a lot of bad, but I, I mean, I guess he's trying to make a redemption for it. Yeah, well, I mean, he also got married, and his wife was really like a far right-wing conservative uh i don't know if she was a politician or just kind of like involved in like conservative movement wait but his ex-wife ex was, was also big in like the conservative movement wait his ex-wife is megan kelly yeah <laughs> <laughs> or mitch mcconnell one of the two <laughs> <laughs> mitch mcconnell before the change yeah. oh god onada would in fact return to the island in 1996 and this was to obviously visit his old posting. And by the island, I should actually say he he visited his old island in the Philippines, Wubang Island, gotcha. not, Japan, not Japan. Gotcha. This actually was very controversial, considering he had never apologized for all of the damage that he did and for the many people that he had killed and for the firefights. So one of the complaints was that he had killed about 30 farmers. Jesus. Okay. That's what I was going to say. It sounded like... When he was holding out there, he was just kind of like fighting every, you know, whatever, attacking everybody. Yeah, I imagine that there wasn't like a shit ton of firefights. I imagine it was mostly he was trying to destroy. It was kind of like a guerrilla warfare was, you know, like the slash and burn, like try to burn all of the enemy supplies. Mm -hmm. So 
if they saw a big thing of you know like rice like they saw all of that rice that was harvested and they burned it all or they probably were like stealing shit that they needed and trying to burn the rest of it but they said that most of the people he killed was farmers because that's mostly the people that he was attacking okay so literally the most innocent of people the people who were least likely to fight back they weren't exactly taking out army garrisons and you know fucking weapon caches right so anada died in tokyo on the 16th of january 2014 and this was heart failure resulting from pneumonia he was actually the second to last japanese holdout to surrender after the end of the war uh that in fact goes to private taru nakamura who surrendered in december of that same year 1974 on moroshai island in indonesia though he wouldn't receive the same hero's welcome at all that onada had been given that is because nakamura was actually from the colonial forces of the japanese army and he wouldn't be given the same respect as a soldier from homeland japan in the colonial forces uh taiwan was the country that he was from which was under the control of the japanese at the time gotcha okay so the taiwanese government also considered this man nakamura as a japanese loyalist and they also did not give him a warm reception either (sighs) damn poor nakamura yeah well he he bypassed wanting to go to japan and just said, take me straight home to Taiwan. And I don't think he realized that they that, didn't want him. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was kind of considered like a relic of the time that they were under the Japanese control. He was also a time before the nationals came in from China and kind of moved the uh, well, they they really considered. So there's communist China. And then there's also like when the nationals got kicked out, they went to Taiwan and they considered Taiwan like the actual china gotcha okay yeah so they kind of like didn't want to hold out from the or a relic from the past Mm. so there was another famous holdout which i was actually going to really do most of the episode on this guy but he wasn't nearly as interesting as the other dude he surrendered in guam in 1972 his name was soshi yokai uh this was after two hunters had actually found him fishing got into a fight with him and captured him wow okay yeah he really didn't do that much um he basically just kind of hit out and he kind of like stole supplies when he needed them he didn't really do like a lot of the covert shit that onada was trying to do but he still thought the war was going on or he's still fighting the war yeah so in this guy's case uh he claimed that he was pretty sure in the 50s that the war was over but he decided just to kind of stay and hold out (laughs) didn't really know he it's one of those it's the same thing he didn't want to surrender because in their minds they're programmed to think like like death before dishonor and he didn't want to die so he couldn't surrender well think about how we're trained now phil you go to a marvel movie credits start rolling you know it's not over yet you know there's going to yeah. be a little snippet at the end. Sometimes, what if they don't put a snippet there? We're going to be constantly waiting for that extra snippet on the end of a Marvel movie. There will be, like, the next batch of customers coming <laughs> yeah. in to watch the movie, and they'll just see all these people still sitting there <laughs> waiting for the next snippet. Where is it? Where's the little sneak preview? Yeah. <laughs> that I did actually, one year, um, it was, the credits took extra long, and about... Half of the people had finally just given up. And I was like, nope, I've been sitting here for like 12 minutes. I'm not fucking, I'm not leaving now and missing this. And then eventually it did come on. But it did feel like an accomplishment. But I also did feel stupid because I could have just went home and YouTubed it. (laughs) Exactly. So Yokai actually did have a little, um, he made a quote about 12 years after, or about 14 years after he was uh, eventually captured. He said, the only thing that gave me the strength and will to survive was my faith in myself, and that as a soldier of Japan, it was not a disgrace to continue on living. So. Damn, that's some deeply rooted indoctrination, I guess is the best word for that there. Holy yeah. shit, it's it's crazy, because I'll be honest, I've never considered that this type of thing would have actually happened, but now that you brought it to my attention, now I'm curious... How many other times has this happened in different countries? I mean, I would assume it is, or do you think it's 
mainly more prevalent in Japan simply because of their national pride back then? I think it has to do with a lot of factors. There was, they have a lot of national pride, a lot of, you know, that kind of death before dishonor situation going on. Also, when the Japanese militaries were like surrendered these islands or were kicked out of these islands or they lost the islands in general, some soldiers were left behind and kind of like hiding or in the case of Onada, his mission only started after the Americans showed up. Also, they really didn't expect the war to just like end just like that. Right, right. Yeah, that's a valid point. I don't know. That's just it's I don't just in my mind, obviously, being a presumably sane person uh, after about five years, I'd be like, what are we still doing out here? Yeah. Like, you you know what I, I mean? But then again, we're dealing with this right now because we still currently have a large sect of the population, including major politicians who can't grasp the fact that the election has been decided. So, and I'm sure that's going to go on for years from now. So, uh, uh, yeah, I know it's a little different, but uh, you get the idea. Some people just can't fathom letting their belief go, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the sad thing is now that this election is called into question, the last election was called into question, so the next election is going to be, you know, called into question. And then who knows when that's finally going to get over. Because I remember after the 2000 election, people were saying that the 2004 election was bullshit. So, Well, I, I mean, look, let's face the facts here. I don't think this is anything new. I'm pretty sure this mm-hmm. shit's been going on forever. The difference, I think, this time is eventually they kind of give up. Uh, this has been dragging on for far yeah. too long now, almost two months now. And usually it's not people at that high of a level who are kind of like propagating this. Normally it's just the localized crazies who are claiming this, but they have no power. In this one, there's actually lawsuits going on. There's, you know, support from congressmen and judges and all this stuff. So who knows? Well, the the thing I saw was like the, the big news last week was like the Texas something with Texas was trying to get involved in other states as uh uh election results or some fucking insane we know i we love people in texas obviously but there is a reputation that literally after every election they try to sign that little thing to secede from the united states oh yeah they always it's like the joke how they always put it on the ballot just in case this is the year i remember when obama got reelected they had like 150,000 people too bad texas has like fucking a billion people living there yeah, Texas has a few more than 150,000, so I doubt <laughs> that's going through. Right. They would uh I don't think they realize that if they leave the if they leave the union, they get 150th of the debt. Cuz one of the things that people from Texas that I've met always say is, "Oh, we don't have any debt." Yeah, we don't have any debt. So if we leave, we just have no debt. It's like, "No, no. You get if, you know, if the whole table gets the bill, you get one whatever of the bill that you were there. So one fiftieth. That's you, part of your bill. You know, I was I was joking with Bianca about this. I was thinking about it. If they seceded and how their state is, I wonder if um, the federal government would charge Texas to ship any products over their land or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I <laughs> I would imagine it's something like that. Like. Obviously, right now, Brexit, uh, that nightmare that's going on, I feel terrible for the British uh, citizens because they clearly got tricked, essentially, Um, and now they are in dire straits, so (laughs) I think that's... Go ahead. I was going to say, it seems like with Brexit, the government just keeps telling them, like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we're going to secede from the fucking uh, European Union, but, you know, when we do... we can't do it right now, obviously, with, you know, and then like something will come up like, oh, COVID, we can't succeed now. And then something else pops up. Oh, fuck, we can't succeed now. So I think they're going to just drag them along, just string yeah. them. Well, if you from everything I've watched is basically like people are like, oh, yeah, let's do that. Why are we attached to them without realizing what that actually meant? And it kind of they yeah. tricked all the citizens and whatever. I don't know. We'll get it. I'm sure something dumbass Boris Johnson will do something at some point because I can't believe they elected a man who looks like Bozo the Clown without his fucking makeup on. Yeah, that's the parliament thing. I don't think he actually got elected. I think that the 
the conservative party guy, once he lost Brexit, then he kind of stepped aside and let the party that won Brexit, he let them take over. So I don't really think he lost. I don't really think Boris Johnson won the election. I'd have to check on that. But with how parliament elections work, you don't actually vote for the main guy. You vote for the party in your little ministry, like your little minister, you vote for him. And then if you give him power, he'll vote for, you know, his party. So gotcha. it works a little okay. different. You don't actually direct votes. So. But you have seen a picture of him, right? And and saw yeah. how he acts. British Trump. Yeah. yeah. He, Jesus Christ. Anyway, Phil. He probably del- has more money than Trump, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, delectable episode, Phil. I think I'm going to go out on a limb and assume a lot of people have no fucking idea this shit happened. So awesome job. Uh, if anybody wants to contact us about how they felt on the episode, where can they do that? They can hit us up on our website, www.subliminaldeception.com. There they can find a link to get into contact with us. They can also find your other show, Bumblebutt Podcast, get in contact with them. Oh, yeah. If you like the old-fashioned email, uh, just go you know, pop in subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing from people. Got a couple good messages just last week. so. Thanks for those. Easiest way probably is just on our Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Also, really great to hear from people on there. Uh, we post, you know, some stuff every week and got a lot of good likes and comments. So thanks for those. Uh, we also have our own Instagram accounts. Mine is sdpodphil. Uh, if you have been getting into contact with me on that, thank you and I'm sorry. Uh, I, I lost the password and can't get it back. Cody, you got one? Yeah, you can follow my personal Instagram at Cody Zabub. Uh, by the way, thank you to everybody who has signed up to our Patreon. I know we do have a new person right now, so thank you very much. Hope you're enjoying Phil and I's little banter session. Uh, seems to be a popular thing. Uh, otherwise, if you do, don't want to support us on Patreon, the other thing you can do, if you're an iTunes listener, simply log into your iTunes, leave the show a five-star review. Just type whatever the hell you want. If you're a Spotify user, you just hit that follow button, and apparently that's like the same thing as a review. Otherwise, guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.